Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics uh, Podcast. Hello, Professor Nicholas. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us in the podcast. I would like to ask you, uh, thank you. I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to introduce and define yourself uh, for the audience for the first time listening to you. Uh, yeah, I think I'm a robotics researcher um, yeah. and I come from Swarm Robotics. And mm-hmm. at some point I uh, became very interested in making materials that are Uh, modeling natural systems and are made out of many, many cells um, uh, using my swarm robotics background. And this is also how I got into soft robotics. Yeah. Uh, but that is where I come from, from a distributed uh, background, not from a mechanical one. Very interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood was? We think that a childhood is very important. Yeah. So yeah, how it was? Um, it was... Um, Uneventful. Uh, I grew up in Frankfurt, uh, Germany, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to school there. I always knew I wanted to do robotics and engineering. I never knew really what engineering direction to really choose, uh, whether to do electrical or mechanical computing. And I ended up uh, doing electrical engineering. Uh, childhood, did I tinker much? Yes. Um, I never really felt I understood the things that I tinkered with. Um, Mm-hmm. electronics or something uh, I always felt like uh, I should understand more about these things um, and um, then I learned later that uh, it wasn't that easy and um, it, it showed that I was really on that track to do engineering um, but it was more in retrospect I didn't really mm-hmm. consciously um, push that great yeah so do you remember what's the first uh, robot you built Um, I think uh, it might have been from a British magazine art, uh, you know, um, where you can build your own robot. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it came with uh, plastic parts and electronics eventually. Um, but then, of course, Lego, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Lego techniques to cre- create um, arms and mechanisms yeah. and grippers and things like this. So I'm curious your specialty about uh, smart material. What, fa- what makes you interested in designing a smart material? Because I think this is something still we don't, I don't know if you agree, we still don't understand it fully, completely, how they behave, how to design them, the modeling. How do you get interested in smart material design? So most people, when they say smart materials and think about smart materials, they think about smart polymers that have some nonlinear properties, so it will change some state uh, based on some external influence and uh, you can uh, do very smart things uh, with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about smart materials as materials that have uh, computing integrated in form of little microcontrollers or other ways to implement computation. Um, and then basically having a very fluent um, change from or transition from Uh, computationally smart in the computational sense where you program things with if then or counting or state 
and uh, using the material properties uh, to create mm -hmm. something smart. Mm -hmm. And how I got interested in it is um, we are uh, studying uh, self-organization and, um, you know, social insects and things like this. And I was very excited to see that um, other people actually explicitly found this connection and started to model um, swarms of ants as a, you know, when they form rafts as a dynamic material that can change its uh, properties in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never done this, but um, I, I can still see how um, the distributed coordination mechanisms uh, that these social insects have might be relevant to create uh, materials that respond in some uh, non-traditional way. That sounds interesting. If you can give us a, a concrete example, something that you what highlighted that, what could be example beyond what traditionally we know about smart material? If you can give example about that. Yeah, I've been um, looking at these... Um, I try to find good examples also, and uh, the most prominent example maybe are things which have negative Poisson ratio, where when you push it together, it um, uh, becomes bigger. Um, mm -hmm. There are others where um, when you pull it, um, it doesn't resist, but it helps you. So you can invert physical concepts, but then the question is what they're useful for. And in my world, I found um, the most utility in uh, what I call robotic materials, or I call the smart materials anyway, robotic materials, but um, as building blocks uh, to make robots. For example, the robotic skin uh, is a material which you could buy off the shelf, um, but it has more than uh, just the properties that um, to protect the robot or make it more soft. It might be like a human skin that it senses touch or it might help with perspiration or it's multifunctional. Or the other thing is uh, muscles. And so muscles are material that are made of tissue um, in you know, biology. And the tissue has the property that it kind of um, coordinates its, um, its activities. So that's how you get like the muscle all pull in one direction, mm -hmm. contract one way or expand in another way. And uh, to make such materials, I think, are not possible to make with, um, uh, with just smart materials in the conventional sense. So I'm curious about your thoughts about soft robotics in general, because we ask about definition. Do you think you have the same thoughts at the community about how the direction we have already in the field in terms of using passive material, or how you define smart material? What is your thought about the general strides for research in soft robotics in the field? Do you think we are going in the right direction sometimes, or we have to shift the focus on certain research line? So soft robotics has become a very, very big field. Uh, you can see that with the citations um, that people get for their work. Um, it involves much, much more people, many more people than um, other conventionally in robotics. Uh, so many material scientists have now embraced that challenge and um, actually even actively do robotics work. So they would create robotic hands or they would create, they would demonstrate their materials in forms of grippers and things like this. Um, now, the question is uh, whether they do it right or not. Um, so often they don't know about the true robotics challenges or don't, don't demonstrate um, their things in a robotic context. But then again, it's up to the roboticists to uh, pick that up and uh, drive um, that direction or use these things in the right way. Um, and I think uh, it's already happening that um, people converge um, 
and um, traditional roboticists uh, work together with uh, traditional material scientists to create new things. Mm -hmm. um, the question is where will it all go? Uh, it's probably still an endless um, field because of the strong um, examples that you see in nature, like biological systems and agile animals and things like this, octopus, um, snakes, uh, stuff like that, where um, we have uh, still ways to go to implement those. Um, when you think about the snake, though, the snake does have a skeleton and oftentimes uh, people are a little bit too overly zealous when they want to create soft things. Mm. And um, I think there's a mix, um, like you see also in the human body, on you know combining the different forms of actuation and kinematics that um, are ways to think about the system in order to get to uh, that kind of performance. But also I'm curious about, because you mentioned about the control and dynamics as well, dynamic modeling. And sometimes we have, uh, in the podcast, a uh, few guests say that we have to uh, maybe stop using the traditional control and just uh, embrace the nonlinearities in the, in the soft bodies, for example. And I don't know what you think about the traditional control uh, in terms of applying to soft bodies. Do you have any thoughts or something maybe you think we have to change how we apply traditional control for soft uh, robots, for example, in that case, or smart material you're doing? Yeah, it's a difficult question because I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. Um, I think there are many ways to pursue this. And one of which is always or has been that the soft robot does the control by itself by embedding it in the um, design. Mm -hmm. So we don't care anymore. So let's say you have a, um, a walking, um, a running, um, or like, a, like these robots which have um, softer wheels and um, there you don't have to control so accurately because the, the compliance in the wheel does it. The same is for grasping. If you wanna grasp something and you have a soft gripper, then the gripper conforms and now the control problem becomes much simpler than it was before where you had to very precisely uh, place the stiff um, gripper. Uh, then of course the control, if you really want full control, and in the classical sense, so you want to uh, understand what everything in the robot does, then the classical methods, of course, will reach the limitations. And what people do is using model predictive control to um, you know, learn a model of whatever that soft um, actuator does, um, and then combine it with machine learning uh, to, um, to have a predictor for its dynamics and learn that from whatever they've built. So I think that's the trend um, in which the control people are going. Mm -hmm. But, but now the question, think, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's not completely clear whether you need that kind of control if you can design it in such a smart way that um, the material takes care of. What could be challenging for you while designing the smart soft bodies you, you're trying to do? What could be the challenging parts for you? Is it fabrication or modeling them? If you can tell us more about your, your research work and the challenges for this aspect. Yeah, so what we keep seeing over and over again is that um, even though the fabrication, I mean, the fabrication is difficult, but then once you fabricate it, it's also much less reproducible than um, a conventional mechanism. Uh, so one of my students builds um, 
these hazel actuators right now. And even though they look the same, um, or he makes them in the same way, you would get like three times the force output um, in, in the same generation of um, devices. So one is three times as strong as the other. And there's some kind of average, but um, if you would build an electric motor, or at least now nowadays, um, you would have much less variance um, in mm -hmm. doing construction. And I think that applies to almost all uh, soft robotic actuators, um, which is something that you have to account for when you control them. And it requires more identification after you build the whole system, uh, more tuning and things like this. I can't agree more about that. I think uh, maybe fabrication, for example, I don't know about you, it's about simulation, for example, to give insights about the design. And I think when we go to fabrication techniques, it could be challenging. And I don't know what you think about the issue for having reproducible results. Sometimes this, we have this right result. So what do you think it may be if you can pinpoint the issue comes from? Um, it's not completely clear to me. Um, I do often think that some of the systems that being presented are operating in a very, very narrow field in a very narrow gap of the parameter space. And people then, uh, when they publish it, are able to demonstrate uh, the behavior or the, the whatever they study in that narrow band. And then others find it difficult to reproduce. And it's, um, I'm not sure what the reason is, whether it is the lack of um, detail in explaining the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But it is that the people who publish that don't know, so they were lucky in getting it into the right configuration. Um, it seems uh, there are many things we just don't know about um, these new materials. Uh, so there's no general, um, no, um, how do you call that, uh, practice um, yeah. there that, um, I mean, I'm thinking very specifically, for instance, about these fishing coil actuators. Um, they come from UT Dallas and they are these uh, winded uh, yeah. fishing coils, uh, winded fishing um, lines. And um, when you heat them, they expand and create tremendous uh, torque and force. Uh, but then when you give that to undergrads or students, it takes them quite some time to reproduce uh, that motion. And then they find it only works um, with sufficient pretension in the right regime. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of theory around that and maybe uh, they have to truly understand that theory in order to really understand that design on the other hand it looks extremely simple um, mm -hmm. because when you watch the video it's just a machine that coils them and then um, you ex it's expected to work so the, the devil is in the detail and a lot of these soft robotic uh, things when you you know do something with polymers and they need curing Mm -hmm. And a very simple, simple mistake can then alter the uh, results uh, dramatically. I really like this point. Do you think it comes down, if we, uh, in terms of understanding the theory behind, uh, for example, the actuator you mentioned, fashion line, do you think it's about modeling, if we have a descriptive modeling that we can know where's the location for it happening here or the details? Do you think there's something still missing if we have this kind of descriptive model or yeah, just a, a, yeah, a roadmap how we can deal with this material or how, do you think this is, because every, every method sometimes it depends on trial and error. So I don't know what you think about that. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is because um, the problems uh, that I have of this nature, um, I don't think a model would have helped. And mm. But the reason is because I don't know the answer. Yeah. So if I had a model and it would tell me, oh, um, when you expose the material to sunlight or to, you know, if it takes too long when you heat it too slowly and then the model would tell you um, then it breaks or changes its properties permanently. I'm just making this up. Then um, probably these kind of instructions would go with the, um, with the paper. And then the model would be helpful to, to understand that. But at this point, I feel like um, you read a paper and you want to build it and you do exactly what it says in the paper, but then you don't get it working. And it is more probably because the people who do that are trained in a different way than the people who actually made it. Mm-hmm. You see, um, we are just not diligent enough or I, I don't know, I can't pinpoint the problem really. And no. I, no. I don't think it is just a model. Um, it's um, it's probably very many factors um, that mm. human error. Yeah. Yeah, I also like about uh, the part of research about how to have this kind of embedding sensing and actuating. If you can tell us, because for example, uh, in a smart material, for example, another way for ionic conductive polymer could work at the actuator and sensor at the same time. And if you can give an example for you, how you can embed the sensing and actuation, having integrated system and can compute, uh, have this computation or um, what's called embodied intelligence. If you can tell us more about that, how you do that, what the challenging, to achieve this goal? So the first um, system I think we built that had these properties um, was a beam that could uh, change its shape. Um, And the idea was that the beam is made of um, multiple um, elements that are identical and that can uh, be molten. So when you heat them, they change their stiffness. And um, we had a built-in thermometer in each of these, um, these cells so that uh, we can use feedback control to heat them to a very specific temperature. And um, when you, you choose, I, I think we chose polycaprolactone, which is some kind of like a wax-like um, material, mm-hmm. which at 60 degrees Celsius becomes uh, more or less liquid. But you have some kind of gradient in between hard and liquid that you can kind of fine-tuned by setting it to, let's say, 55 degrees. Um, and so how does that shape, shape change? So you have a variable stiffness beam that way. And now we apply the torque from the outside by um, having a wire that allows you to pull the beam into each, um, to the left and to the right. And as a function of the stiffness profile that you tune in, um, the beam bends in a specific way. And that is something we can, uh, you know, model and compute and therefore um, change the shape into any shape you want by pulling once to the right and then pulling once to the left. And now the computation um, that uh, is external is uh, this inverse kinematics, like how do I have to change the individual stiffness to do um, that shape change. And what we've then done is we came up with a distributed algorithm that implements that computation. Um, And essentially it is um, trying to solve the inverse kinematics by changing just one cell at a time. And so Mm -hmm. you have some goal and um, you say, okay, I can only bend at one point and I can only bend a very little bit, but I wanna get closer to my goal. 
And so then I get closer to my goal. And so then I go to the next cell and say, okay, now you are allowed to bend. Which way do you want to bend? And um, when you do that, the computation travels back and forth um, from the beginning to the end. And of course, you simulate everything. And only once you found the solution, you actuate it. Um, and we then wrote a paper where we argue, and we have no clue, um, but we just hypothesize uh, that this is uh, maybe very similar to the inverse kinematics algorithm that the octopus would use. Because also there you have some activation patterns that are flowing back and forth, uh, much the same way that the computation uh, flows in our system. And of course, it makes sense to do it that way. Uh, maybe there's a better way. Um, but then um, we found those um, similarities with that animal quite interesting. And mm -hmm. as you know, there you can cut it into a smaller pieces and the octopus would still do mm -hmm. the behavior that it has um, learned to grow. Yeah. And when you say that you have to activate the specific cells or parts in the, in the, in the robot, for example, in which basis you have to select the first uh, uh, guess or solution for that? Um, well, it was just um, the fact that um, solving the, when you have like an infinitely long beam, yeah then uh, the inverse kinematics becomes harder and harder. Um, I think it's an n-square problem to, to do that. Yeah. And so we use the inverse Jacobian method. So what you do is you do a matrix inversion to, um, to calculate how much you have to move each joint in order to make progress with the tip. And so okay. if, you have, if you allow the arm to have n elements, then um, you will quickly reach the limitations of an individual computer. Yeah. So you have to come up with a way to do it in a scalable way. And so that's why we said, okay, instead of doing the inverse Jacobian method all at once, we do it piece by piece and mm -hmm. every element can move um, a little bit and then the next one and then the next one. And so you don't get the same solution, but you can approximate, um, you, you will get often the same result. And mm -hmm. so um, then it's very natural to just go along the beam and let every n elements contribute to the decision. And then of course you're not there, so you have to go back again and uh, do it again and again and again until the arm um, you know, reaches the tip of the end and reaches the, the goal. Thank you for your operation, yeah. But I'm curious about the trade-off. Sometimes we ask about the design process or for example, when you, you try to uh, find a solution for that. Uh, what could be the trade-offs, for example, in designing or computation? What the trade-off you face, the trade-offs you have? Uh, so in the design, the trade-offs are um, choosing the right um, mechanism. So, mm. um, and being able to build it in at a scale that you're interested in. And so when we made this um, shape-changing beam, we initially wanted to have uh, soft pneumatic actuators around its entire um, you know, length. And um, that was too difficult to make also because you have to be very reliable when we had like six elements. So we would have needed 12 actuators, one for the left, one for the right. Yeah. And we started doing that, but it was a big mess and we could have optimized that process to manufacture that um, in a more you know, slimmer way. Or, uh, but we then said, well, we are interested in, we want to have something that can do the shape change and we want to then focus on the computation. So we decided to just replace the pneumatic actuators with one string that pulls it. And the same for the stiffness change. We've been looking at many different ways to accomplish that. Um, the first one we wanted to do was sheet jamming. 
when, when you have multiple sheets and you evacuate the air, then they become very stiff and you can then you know, open the valve a little bit and then it becomes a little more flexible. Um, but also that um, didn't have the effect that we wanted because you can't control the, it's either stiff or not, but it's very hard to control in between. So um, now the trade-off that we finally had is that when you heat something, it takes uh, very long until it melts and even longer until it cools. So the dynamics of the beam are very, very far from the octopus arm. It takes like, um, you know, a few minutes to heat it and then it takes like eight minutes, 10 minutes to cool sufficiently until we can heat the other, um, you know, get a direction. So um, that, these are the kind of trade-offs we face. Uh, now with the computation, uh, people often skip that step and just solve it on a big computer or something. Um, and we were really interested in pushing that uh, direction. Uh, yeah. But it's also maybe the least interesting one until you have um, distributed or ways to make or manufacture these large scale distributed um, systems. Yeah. So, because if you don't have them, if you build something that is not very compelling because it moves very slowly, then who cares about how to how to com control it? So mm -hmm. it's, it's really um, the trade-off is in what kind of point do you want to make? What kind of challenge do you want to study? And and we always chose the computational uh, yeah. over the manufacturing ones because we are computer scientists at the end yeah. of the day and not um, mechanical yeah. engineers. Yeah, I'm curious when you said pushing and the computation, um, this part, for example, what do you think uh, you need to do more for computation from soft robots, for example? What could same thing that you can tell us about that we need to focus more, we need to give much attention to a computation side? Yeah, um, so it depends on what your vision is. And if your vision is to create uh, systems from cells, like uh, people and plants and animals, Mm -hmm. And um, there's, of course, a very tremendous challenge because you have to think about how to program each individual cell so that um, it makes you or your brain, you know, um, or an animal or me or, um, I don't know, a mechanic, a, a bicycle. So mm -hmm. how do you have to program each cell in a bicycle so that it does what you want? So when you pedal, um, there's a chain. So all of this has to be somehow um, thought out. Um, and I think we're very far away from that. But then the question is, why do you want that? And I want that for purely ideological reasons, because it fascinates me, this idea to be able to engineer um, things in that way. Uh, but oftentimes, the, if you think about just solving a specific problem, then um, making a fully distributed approach is overthinking things. And so I think um, when you ask what computation we need, then I can only give you the answer what computation I need for my vision to create some kind of octopus-like materials, which I think is the most interesting of these distributed ones because of its multifunctionality. Or if you say, well, we want to do soft robots to make um, robots that are safer or more agile, and uh, then the answer would be completely different yeah, I like this point. Do you think it's related to morphological computation in that case? Yeah, I think yeah. morphological computation is, is very interesting. Um, and we, we earlier talked about that as being the way to solve most of the problems. 
actually using soft robotics to make problems simpler, making the control simpler, by shifting um, the computation inside the material. And computation might just mean that a gripper, you know, complies around an object. Mm -hmm. And now when you say morphological computation, I think about a set of tools that is scaffolding that design process and would allow you to choose from um, a library of growing elements to create certain results. And one of the exciting examples I always find is um, the um, placement of the uh, eyes on a, a fly, I think, or some mm -hmm. other flying insect uh, that is in the original Pfeiffer paper with Fumi um, Ida, where it says that um, the displacement is changing in a way that the computation that follows is linear and not nonlinear. So the brain saves a lot of computation by um, nature choosing the arrangement of these cells um, in a smart way. And so if you understand that as a tool and you want to build a robot that um, you want to, you know, make more efficient, um, then you can just, you know, reproduce that. So I feel like uh, morphological computation is very important to, you know, contribute to a growing arrangement, um, um, selection of these kind of tools that we can then use to build something um, maybe uh, non-intuitive, you know, where it does yeah. some like really complex uh, computation that is otherwise uh, very difficult to implement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really think all the points you mentioned is really uh, very interesting. But I'm, I would like to ask you, do you think that comes down sometimes we, we have Professor Robert Wood and he said sometimes we, if we, the goal is not publications, the goal is just deep understanding and basic science. And I don't know, maybe I'm just wrong, but I don't know if you agree or not that if the incentive to publish as soon as possible and we don't focus in what you mentioned, for example, that we still, yeah, there's no much uh, uh, like focus or attention to these hard problems. Do you agree on that? Do you think that's one of the issues that lead us far from what you said or how we can more toward that? Uh, no, I think this publication issue is very personal and depends on career mm -hmm. states. And also you have to develop students and they have to publish stuff and probably once a year or twice a year. And you can't hold them back forever and say, no, we have yeah. to study this. And then they yeah. don't learn how to write a paper. So I feel like these are unrelated problems. Um, and um, now whether the fundamentals are treated or not, um, I think um, in the US, the science system is um, a little bit more utilitarian than in um, Europe, um, where you, even if you want to do fundamental research, you have to say where it goes and what the direction is. And um, sometimes I think you cannot really make a compelling case for that. So you would say, I want to do this fundamental research and it's very important. And then I can, um, you know, make robots safer or something like this. Yes. And then people say, well, we have other problems. There's somebody else who wants to, you know, do fundamental research to cure cancer. Mm -hmm. And we should give them the money because it's like a finite, finite pot. And so I think, um, the problem maybe could also be that often people don't know where this is going. And then what happens to fields is that they collapse and take a break and then they reemerge. And um, this happens everywhere. Um, it happens in social insects, it happens in machine learning and it will happen in soft robotics. Um, 
you know, once the excitement is, is over and, you know, the initial excitement and people find what really works and what doesn't, um, then they take a break and then rediscover maybe fundamental work from 20 years ago um, in the next uh, iteration. Yeah. But I'm curious about in your work experiences, is there something you, you thought, that's I think an uh, uh, interesting uh, part about working and you think that something would work out very well, but an empirical result, uh, you, you have something unexpected in terms of the result or yeah, it was counterintuitive to what you thought about it. It's happened to you before, something like that? You designed something in modeling and when you tested in reality, it was completely different or counterintuitive result. Do you have something like that? Uh, no, unfortunately not. Uh, this, this is very exciting when that happens, um, when you make a real discovery, um, which uh, just comes uh, at the side. I um, often discover that um, things are much simpler than I thought. So I thought I need a certain thing and then um, it turns out that I don't. Um, for instance, you know, tactile sensing is something that I looked at a lot in the terms of soft robotics. And then we found that um, it, it's very difficult to use that modality when you have very good vision. And the same is um, when you grasp something. Um, and I just saw again a video where somebody had a soft robot and they grasped eggs and um, a glass. Um, and you can just do that with the standard gripper without any sensing by just controlling the torque of the mechanism. So you just limit the torque to not be strong enough to squish the egg or break the glass. Um, and so then the sensing again happens inside the controller that limits the current. And so um, that happens to me uh, more often than not that we investigate some something and then we try to demonstrate it um, and then we realize where well, we could have demonstrated it. Um, and I think actually I discovered this by grasping strawberries mm -hmm. um, and my people um, implemented the gripper with our soft sensors and they grasped strawberries and I said, wow, that's fantastic. So the, the gripper is, um, you know, you detect, the, the, you measure the force and then you stop. And they say, oh, no, we are not uh, using the sensors at all. We just use the um, torque controller of the, the gripper. And um, I didn't expect that at all because I thought you really need those sensors in order to tell how fast, how, how, how strong you squish the object. And they just found an easier way to use the, so you mm -hmm. can use a metal gripper and pick up strawberries without squishing them. So um, I think that is an unexpected result, but it also, um, yes, it is um, frustrating mm -hmm. in a way because you, you think you have to push in a new field in order to solve a certain problem that you could have solved um, in a more conventional way. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. And what could be interesting research line for your group you, you are going to focus on for the coming years? If you can tell us, or maybe also you can tell us also what could be interesting research line you have witnessed in soft robotics in general. So we can be first to the first part uh, in your lab, what could be interesting research line you think you, you can focus on? Yeah, so we, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, we focus a lot on distributed computation and we currently work with Rob Shepard's group in Cornell um, on an Air Force grant and um, he's uh, investigating uh, novel actuators um, and novel sensors that are all soft. 
and uh, we try to focus on the distributed computation to drive them. And so far we've been uh, doing model predictive control to um, learn where sensors are embedded in a soft actuator that he makes and in which he cannot control where the sensors are. So then the machine learning algorithm observes the motion of the object and gets the sensor readings. And uh, now we wanna extend that to more um, distributed actuator systems. And one thing we made is a wheel which uses hazel actuators and um, where you have eight uh, of them around the surface. And so the wheel can drive itself forward by, um, you know, in, not inflating, but act activating these um, hazel actuators at the right time. Um, so that is something we use model predictive control for again. And that is where we observe these, you know, fabrication issues. And uh, that's something where maybe machine learning can help to adapt the system um, after it's built. And so that is something that a lot of people in machine learning talk about, mm -hmm. which is learning after the fact, after the model has been trained and refining it. Um, that is probably something that um, soft actuator systems are very good for because they might require adaptation after mm -hmm. manufacturing, they might require adaptation during their lifetime. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff uh, we're doing right now in soft robotics. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, yeah. So we are closing to the end and have a few questions. Uh, the first one is, what is something you maybe aspire for the field of robotics and for yourself? What aspiration do you have? Yeah, my aspirations are really to um, be able to create these novel material systems with which you can build uh, other things. And I always say um, the punchline is robotic materials are materials that make robots smart. Um, and um, I can go on and on for that. Um, again, I explained the skin, but there's also bones, which are very smart systems because they store energy and they can grow and adapt. So they're not just um, mechanical structural pieces. So creating systems, uh, material systems that help you to build, uh, make it easier to build smart systems. Mm. That is really my aspiration. Yeah. And um, that is not just soft robotics. Uh, I think that is robotics in general. And some of these are yeah. soft and some of them are, don't, are not. So these are my aspirations uh, for the field. Um, and also, how, how do you think about uh, the intellectual inclusiveness in the field? Do you think we are intellectually inclusive for different ideas? Or, yeah, how do you see that part? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I'm not so deep in the field uh, and I'm saying that <clears throat> because the field is already extremely diverse with chemists and physicists and roboticists all contributing and often there are misunderstandings or people don't know about um, the other viewpoint because they are not trained that way yeah. and now the inclusiveness of course goes away when once certain standpoints become dominant and then they just ignore that you might need computation or something or i'm just making this up and i'm the victim here because uh, everyone thinks it's just a material that you can use uh, so um, there might be certain directions where people are focusing on the wrong things and they are dominated uh, yeah. by a certain field that is now owning soft robotics let's say chemistry or let's say physics um, yeah. so um, 
On the other hand, I feel um, this is one of the most interdisciplinary uh, fields um, that you can currently be in. And that also reflects on the diversity of its participants. So when you look at more classical robotics, then you might have uh, less women, for example, than in um, biology or in chemistry. And so now um, I think with soft robotics, um, there's a change there because the field is so extremely diverse and attracts so many different uh, perspectives. Um, so I wouldn't say that soft robotics is an example of um, lack of, it's probably the more inclusive of the, um, the fields. That's what I currently think when you... Okay, that's also a good point. Thank you for that. And do you think ego is important for you? Uh, yeah, ego is very important for scientists mm. um, because um, you get groomed that way because it's all about you, your paper, your rejection letter. And then when you grow, you, um, your students write papers and then they get rejected, yeah. but you take it personal. And then you get an award and you want, the, I don't know, the Nobel Prize or whatever it is. So it is an extremely, um, I think it is a very, um, it is, it is, it's a profession that is very, you know, promoting egocentric or, you know, self-focus. Um, Do you think it's healthy? I don't think it is particularly unhealthy. I think there are more unhealthy professions. Mm -hmm. in which um, these things are even more um, accentuated. Now you asked me if ego is important for me and I just see myself to be yeah. um, susceptible to rejections. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's the career of resilience um, yeah. and you have to find ways to cope with them and how can you cope with them better than saying, oh, um, they're wrong and I'm right. I keep pu mm. pushing forward. So you are in this kind of cycle in which you which you um, massage your ego, or you say, oh, no, I, I have to say I'm wrong and I should not do this anymore. Um, I shouldn't apply for grants because everything I want money for is wrong. Um, yeah. So, and, and that, that doesn't work, so. Yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah. <laughs> and what could be the most important quality you have, you have gained in academia and also you have to maintain for your academic journey? What are the most important qualities you have gained? Yeah, now that I'm here at CU Boulder as a professor for 10 years or 11 years, I think um, I see really clearly that sticking to one thing, which I should have done, is, mm -hmm. um, is the most important quality. Because mm. what you see as you grow older is that, um, uh, you know, people doing certain things for 10 years, 15 years, and um, nobody liked them. Actually, best example is neural networks. When I started my career, neural networks wasn't the fringe, like genetic algorithms or you know swarm optimization things. And I got to the point where I didn't even understand why people are still pushing for that. And then it clicked and people who've been working in the field for 20, 30 years had tremendous uh, breakthroughs and everybody had to acknowledge that. So um, I think giving up too early and going with the flow and saying, oh, nobody cares about neural networks, I should do this and that, whatever was hot at the time, mm -hmm. I remember, um, is a big mistake. And um, I, don't, I don't think I've done that and switched too quickly and been too opportunistic, but oftentimes I think I should have just, you know, stuck to that and just keep pushing. And um, now my time scale is shrinking. So now three years is not as long as anymore as it was um, when I was 20. 
and uh, it now becomes easier to play the long game. And I think that is the quality that uh, you need as an academic. I really like this point. Do you think it comes down to maybe someone could say that it could be risky? For example, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, uh, he was a pariah at a certain time because of the, uh, this idea and he was treated poorly for a long time until yeah i don't know i don't know do you think it's got it's kind of risk a little bit if you stick to something and the field all the field is shifting the focus in different something different and you are in a different way do you think it's risk a little bit for you yeah it's very risky um because um you don't get any short-term uh, reward Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand you can still publish i guess um and risky is also in the you know, the question is, do you have to get a PhD? And yes, you will get the PhD. Um, will you get tenure? Um, well, if you're unlucky, then the timescale don't align and then you don't get tenure because people say, well, this is fringe stuff and it's not interesting. Uh, so I think that is the risky point in the career. But then, uh, well, also as a postdoc, I think when you try to get an academic job and you're not doing these things that everybody's looking for, then it's pretty risky. So I think one has to um, decide for oneself when it's worth taking a risk and when it's not. Mm. And I mean, I realize only in retrospect that what I've done for my tenure was very risky because I wrote all these papers about robotic skins and robotic muscles and whatever, mm. and they were all in these different journals, um, biomimetics, and I don't even know, different ones. And it was really the fact that we could do a science paper that reviews all this work, which then allowed me to make a point and saying, I'm up to something. I wanna, I have all these different things that look all different and then seemingly disconnected, but there's this underlying. And I don't know what would have happened if I wouldn't have done this, but then I realized, oh, wow, if I would have not pulled this paper off, my record would have looked a little bit sketchy and fringy mm -hmm. and weird. So um, I think it's risky. Everything you do is risky. Um, also, if you go with the flow, very risky because then you are easily identified as an opportunist who makes like small contributions. But you know, so yeah. um, there's always a remain remaining risk, and I think you have to um, make, keep things interesting and have, try to yeah. have fun, and that um, mm -hmm. probably gets you more into the risky area. I like this point, yeah. So the last question is, what is the best advice uh, was given to you and was life changing? Uh, that's a good question. And I think um, when we discussed it earlier, I had an answer to that. Um, I think I had many different advices that um, happened. Um, and interestingly, um, they often come in an, in, you know, you're, you're not getting them told uh, at your PhD defense or something, but you just pick them up in a way that um, they're probably not meant, um, they're not like coming in some kind of formal framework to you, but somebody just says something and then um, it happens. Um, so right now I can't recall a specific one that I can, you know, tie to that. But I'm sorry about this because I knew it happened to me two or three yeah. times um, where um, things were quite substantially. Uh, I mean, one thing that I really like is George Whiteside's uh, and how he thinks. And um, one of the things he, he said, he wants to only work on um, simple solutions to important problems. 
So if the problem is not important, he's not interested, nobody's interested. And if the solution isn't simple, then people can't do it. So I tried then for many years um, to, um, to follow this example and it's extremely difficult because um, you are more often not interested in problems that are not important and then you have very complicated ways to solve them, which puts you into the other extreme. Uh, so I think that is, um, that is one of them, I think. I appreciate this point. That's also a good point. Uh, yeah. And even not easier, as you said. Yeah. So do you have any final words to soft robotics community you'd like to say? Any final words you'd like to say? Uh, yeah, so I think the soft robotics community, I think we should uh, think much more in a broader systemic material way and mm -hmm. roboticizing um, things that are not robots yet, like surfaces and, you know, everyday objects, um, rather than fixating on robots, because there often uh, you have to compete with, um, in this case, Atlas or Spot mm -hmm. Mini, and um, oftentimes soft robotic actuators are very far away from the performance of a servo motor. And so pushing that, I think, is very ungrateful because you have to compete with Spot Mini. And uh, Spot Mini runs and has an arm now, can pick up things. So what do you want to do? Like, do you want to make it safer? Okay, so then uh, Spot Mini is quite safe because it can measure the torque. So I feel like um, soft robotics should uh, think much broader about um, you know, robotics in the sense of sensing and actuation and computation uh, to enrich um, a larger variety of, of, of everyday objects. Mm -hmm. That's also a very excellent point. Thank you for saying that. Uh, again, uh, I would like to thank you, Professor Nicholas, for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was very inspiring. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you. for inviting me. It's thank nice you. to meet you. Thank you. Thank you.